This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, August 29th, 2022, on your public radio station, KUAF 91.3, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, a new grant will enable the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences to combat food insecurity. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has that story. And we learn what's new and sort of the same for the Razorback Marching Band as a new football season approaches. That's the subject of this week's Prior Center Profile with Randy Dixon. First up, public school districts in the region this fall are beefing up school security to deter active shooters. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. Springdale Public School District is the largest in Arkansas, counting 23,000 students, 3,000 faculty and staff who occupy 45 facilities and 31 school buildings. Superintendent Jared Cleveland says school security is mission critical. Our main focus for every building is keeping the right people out. The right people out are the ones who might want to do harm to any of them. Since the Columbine High School massacre in Colorado in 1999, 169 people have died in 14 mass school shootings across the U.S. That includes 27 killed inside Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012, and most recently 19 children and two adults at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas last May. So far this year, 27 school shootings have occurred creeping close to a record 34. With escalating gun violence on public school campuses, school districts across Arkansas are growing armed security forces, referred to as school resource officers, SRO for short. We have 21 SRO positions. Uh, We also are hiring 18 Commissioned school security officers. Commissioned security school officers tend to be private security guards or retired police and are required to complete SRO training by the Arkansas State Police to qualify to carry a firearm in school buildings. Cleveland says once students enter school facilities in the morning, SROs make sure they remain locked in. You know, at every front door, we have what we call a raptor system. In order to get in the building, you have to go to the front door. You can't get anywhere else. You have to buzz in, state your purpose. Why are you here? They let them in. They have to go through the office. At the elementary schools, we have what we call secured vestibules. Security vestibules provide school administrators with control over who has access to the interior of their school building, a sort of second locked entrance, providing an important line of defense. Facilities are also equipped with camera surveillance some with bulletproof glass. Springdale Police Captain Jeff Taylor is public information officer in charge of Springdale School District's SRO program. You know, a school resource officer, they wear multiple hats. Um, If you look at the NASRO website, which is the National Association of School Resource Officers, it talks about a triad. So we're uh, law enforcement first, but we're also an informal counselor, and we're also an educator because we teach classes, we counsel kids, So, but our number one job is to keep kids safe. Thirteen SROs in Springdale schools are white. One is Pacific Islander and one Native American. Thirteen are male, two are female. All undergo annual cultural diversity training. School resource officers are police academy trained first and if selected to serve as school resource officers, undergo more specialized training. 
they've all been trained on youth mental health first aid, on how to deal with kids if they're, you know, just have different things going on in their life. Anything from could be a, an assault that happened at home where they have they feel comfortable to talk to the SRO and not call the police on a Saturday afternoon. They call they wait until Monday to tell the SRO that something happened at home. In such situations, social services are contacted. Superintendent Cleveland says, along with fire and tornado drills, students are drilled to quickly respond to an active shooter situation. The original thought process on lockdown is you just hunker down. You lock the door and you hunker down and wait under a table or whatever. Well, as we know, in Columbine and other places, that didn't work out very well. So uh, we've really morphed into a new thought process of try to get out if you can and uh, hide if you can as far as behind a wall or whatever if someone's in the hall. Um, we've gone further even with our students in training uh, the ALICE program. The acronym ALICE stands for Alert, Lockdown, Inform, Counter, Evacuate, a procedure now implemented by schools rather than simply locking down in place. The district spends a million dollars a year on police SROs and expects to pay an additional 800000 to staff a commissioned security officer force, security system equipment, hardware, and software upkeep, Cleveland says costs a quarter of a million dollars a year. School Superintendent Cleveland was recently appointed by Governor Asa Hutchinson to a two-year term on the advisory board for the Arkansas Center for School Safety at the Criminal Justice Institute. It's really good to be able to represent Springdale at the state level if we can, and I'm honored that I was selected, and I'm honored that our governor chose to recognize us and me particularly and recommend me for this commission. On August 11th, Governor Hutchinson signed into law a bill creating the School Safety Grant Program, which authorizes $50 million to applicant districts seeking to comply with implementation of Arkansas School Safety Commission recommendations, including placing a school resource officer in every public school in the state. Captain Jeff Taylor says Springdale School District is prepared to respond to a school shooter. Every school in our district, they care deeply for our students. And every SRO that we have, I have no no question in my mind, they're going to do the right thing. And they're going to go to that sound of whether it be a gunfire or some other type of emergency and handle the situation. Fayetteville High School students shoot hoops during lunch break on their second day of fall classes. Hundreds more students packed the lunch cafeteria and lounge outside this pleasant late summer day. Fayetteville High School is one of 16 school facilities in the district, serving 10,500 students who are carefully patrolled by five armed school resource officers. Well, we have plans in, in place for each school, and we don't disclose those because we'd some a bad actor could get a hold of that information. Alan Wilborn is Interim Executive Director of Communications and Public Relations for Fayetteville School District. We have uh, an intruder on campus drill. We have weather drills. We have fire drills. All, all the scenarios that we think could possibly come about, every school district has a plan that they rehearse and they drill on so that both students and staff will know what to do in the event of an emergency. And, of course, the SROs are a key part of that plan, too. Fayetteville's School Resource Officer Program works to reduce the incidence of juvenile crime and delinquency. The district provides incident reports to the city of Fayetteville, 
last year counting three arrests and 18 citations, a steep decline over recent years. Fayetteville City Council recently approved hiring an additional school resource officer in continuing cooperation with the local police department under an existing cost-sharing agreement. That's correct. We're very pleased with that. They'll add an additional SRO for the 2022-23 school year, and they also voted in the resolution to add at least two per year over the next few years until every school in Fable Public Schools has one. And so that would mean all 16 campuses would have at least one dedicated school resource officer. Fayetteville SROs offer law enforcement education classes, mentoring, and engage with students day-to-day while maintaining continual surveillance for any threats. They also conduct unannounced active shooter lockdown drills on all campuses and with all grades, Wilburn says. We do talk, especially the, the very young ones, that this is what we're doing, and we walk through it, and this is, and this is what we're doing. The, the, the teachers are very well-trained. They're very good at it and staying calm. This is what we're going to do. We're going to go over here. We're going to shut these windows or whatever this, the, the protocol calls for. This is what we're going to do, and just listen to me, and we'll be okay. Bentonville school officials began hiring armed security officers through the Bentonville Police Department in 2018. Two SROs patrol the district's 23 school facilities, serving more than 19,000 students. A third is expected to be hired this year. Fort Smith Public Schools Police Department program employs 12 certified police officers that serve as SROs. They strive to build positive relationships with students while protecting them from the growing threat of gun violence. The nonprofit Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition is pressing public schools in northwest Arkansas to reduce the number of armed law enforcement on campuses, most recently in Fayetteville. The coalition says SROs do reduce school violence, but do not prevent school shootings, pointing to data generated by Annenberg Brown University. That data also shows black and brown students are disproportionately arrested by SROs in the U.S. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. An injunction blocking an Arkansas ban on gender-affirming health care for transgender youth from taking effect remains after a ruling by the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals late last week. This follows a suit filed by the ACLU last year on behalf of four transgender youth, their parents, and two Arkansas doctors. A lower court previously blocked enforcement of Act 626, the first like it in the country, a week before it would take effect last summer. The ban outlaws gender-affirming medical care for transgender adolescents and penalizes physicians who attempt to provide it. Sarah Everett, the policy director at ACLU Arkansas, says she's pleased with the ruling. Today, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that no child should be denied the medical care they need, and we are relieved for trans youth in Arkansas. Research shows that denying gender-affirming care to transgender youth contributes to depression, isolation, self-harm, and suicide. Transgender people deserve the right to live healthy lives without fear and discrimination. And it's time for the Arkansas legislature to protect trans kids, not target them. The three-judge Eighth Circuit Court panel says Arkansas's trans youth health care ban does not advance any important governmental interest, and the state's defense of the law is lacking in legal or evidentiary support. Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge told Ozarks at Large she plans to seek review by the full Eighth Circuit Appeals Court. The case is currently scheduled for a non-jury trial in U.S. District Court in Little Rock in October.
Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas Retirement Community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities are available. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for information. So many thank yous to hand out after another Fayetteville Roots Festival weekend. Fayetteville Library, again, top-notch as our host for Friday's live Ozarks at Large broadcast. Timothy Dennis, Matthew Moore, and Anna Pope were there with me for a wonderful hour of radio. And Matthew, Timothy, and I also spent time at the library with more musicians Friday and Saturday afternoons. You'll start hearing some of those sessions very soon. Also, big thanks to the Fayetteville Roots team, sound crew, chefs, volunteers, and musicians for all their hard work for three days. Much gratitude for surprising me with the 2022 Crazy Chester Award on stage Saturday night at the Fayetteville Town Center. It's a profound honor to be included on a list with previous awardees, and that will always uh, remain a special moment for me. So thank you very much. And a belated thank you to Welcome Health for inviting me to host their annual fundraiser at Sassafras Vineyards earlier this month. You can learn more about their work at welcomehealthnwa.org. Happy Monday to you. Thanks for being with us on Ozarks Large. And Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Happy Monday to you. Happy Monday, Kyle. Happy Monday to everyone. And school is back in session on the U of A campus. And it's football time. So you got us in the spirit with that fight well, song? Well, I... I I didn't pick football. You know, we've done a lot of yeah. football segments. Uh, I wanted to do something about, well, it's a staple of, of every, especially home football game, but it's the Razorback Marching Band. I mean, what is a hog game without the hog band? There are more than 350 members. Wow. So it's the largest uh, student organization on campus. Makes sense. Yeah, Makes because sense. there's not just the marching band, and we'll hear about uh, more of that uh, in a few minutes. There are other bands, and uh, it's it's just it's a huge department and a huge asset yes. to the university. So I want to talk about the band and the history, and I even uh, hung out for a few of their practices. Oof. It was hot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's on a parking lot, yeah. asphalt. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like, let's go jam. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And so I want to talk about the history of the band uh, and then their performance, how they prepare for it, and then also how the Prior Center is involved uh, with the band and a project that, that we're really excited about. But we'll talk about that in a few minutes. First, uh, I talked to the director of bands and music professor, Chris Knighton, about the history of uh, Razorback bands. It's an exciting tradition. Obviously, we've had the Razorback band uh, through since 1874, but we, we've also been able to trace it through both world wars and through um, cultural changes with things like different trends in music and then with all the video we have, we we're able to trace it through other political events and, and just also how uh, styles of marching bands have changed through the years. So it's developed into now more than 350 people in the Razorback Band, more than 120 people in the Hogwild Pet Band, and we have five concert bands 
that meet through the year. So we have um, almost 400 people in the program and probably 75% of those students are not music majors. We have students representing every college within the university. Uh, and it's just a great outreach for so many different types of students and hopefully a place where they're all welcome and able to participate in what we're doing. Remember, the beginning of Arkansas is that 16 counts of drumline, and that starts with a move. Almost uh, almost always we turn a tune with a mark time, but Arkansas starts with a move. So we're going to be marking six to seven. Six to seven is a 16-count move. Metron will be giving you the quarter note. You are marching the half notes. There you go, six to seven marching. All right, first we heard Chris Knighton talk about the history of bands, and then we heard... Yeah, what you heard there was I was in the field... Uh, with Jeffrey Summers, uh, who's the marching band director, and I went to a couple of their practices, and it takes place in the parking lot across from uh, Bomb Stadium, the baseball okay. stadium. Uh, and, and it's not an easy workout, like I said. There's a lot of planning, and like anything else that you have to train for, it's a lot of repetition, a lot of work, and it's hot. But, um, you know... Along with all the planning, it's really tough for this first game because you've got everybody just coming to school and you've got a lot of freshmen, people who have never done this before. Right. Now, fortunately, they probably had marching band experience in high school, but never anything on this scale with that many people. So um, I asked Summers about the process as far as like what we actually do you can kind of break things up into two different groups so like it's either like learning the music or it's learning the the drill or the marching design on the field um and we've gotten to we, we love it we've gotten to a tradition here where pretty much every home game we learn a new show and so while right now we're thinking about cincinnati here in just over a week um, but we're also thinking ahead. We're starting to learn music for the South Carolina show and the, and the Missouri state show. And then again, in Dallas and for Bama. So, you know, five, five games in five weeks, um, you have to be thinking ahead. Otherwise you get caught with like, you know, it's three days before a game and you haven't started learning the stuff yet. Like he was saying, they have to stay ahead, way ahead, because like in this case, there are five home games in a row and they have a different show every halftime. So you can't, just pull one out right. in a week. Right. right. So, so you know, they, they have to do that. And so I wanted to just listen in on a little bit of the practice and how that goes. This will get us musically all the way up to letter C. We're going to go from the beginning all the way up to letter C, which is set 11, which is where you are now. Standing in place, marking in play. Or not marching in play, just, just music. This is practice, Arkansas Marching Band is our uh, subject this week on the Prior Center Profiles. I think of marching rehearsal, right, you got maybe a megaphone or a bullphone, you got a, maybe a metronome, what else do they Well, have? you know, I always had, I was a bandy, I was a trumpet player, and you had a clip that you would have the music that you would flip over right in front of you. Well, you know, new technology as it is, they're using their phones not only with the music, but 
there's a marching app that you can keep up with the steps and where you need to go. Well, I mean, of course there is. Well, yeah, and um, this is the first time I'd heard of you know having a phone either in class or at some university activity. They encourage you to have there, a phone. You have to. We use a we use an app on the phone um, that that shows them where to go, and a lot of it is like they're on the app. I know and. They're they're reading like okay I got to march ten feet this way and then twelve yards that way and and we we're doing it all together but there's a lot of time where the students are just like they're basically just teaching themselves uh, on the fly and then what you see is like it's all together uh, and like that's what the crowd sees also it's like you know, oh we're all moving we're make we're spelling out Arkansas or outline of the state or whatever it may be but it's a lot of like individual individual learning individual um, uh, like requirements to make to make the big picture work. So, what's more important, the music or the marching? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, we, we we try to make sure the focus is on both. Um, but if if I have to choose between one or the other, I choose the music. Um, I mean, that's people recognize the tune, right? Like we we, we try to play music that you know. Either our alumni recognize or the student body recognize, um, and so if if it doesn't sound like the song is supposed to sound like, I think that's the bigger problem than if uh, you know this line or this you know shape is a little a little off. You mentioned that they're going to have five home games in a row starting this Saturday with Cincinnati, um, so they've got to stay ahead. I can't imagine the techniques that they use to make sure they've got it right. Well, one thing that they do is like the football team, they review. Films like a game film, they they watch video of, you know, their halftime performance to make sure the lines are straight and they're marching properly and, you know, pretty much keep up with they're supposed to. And, um, you know, the games are shot, but not always the band is shot. And that's where the Wooly Brothers come in. That's two words, right? Wooly Brothers. Yes, it's two guys. Okay. okay. It's uh, David and Bill, and they were both grads from the university. They were both in the band, but they have been shooting and saving these pregame and halftime performances since the 60s, mainly started in 1970, but they started, they were in school in the 60s, and they started doing it then because... There was not really anything set up to shoot these bands, so they spent their own money, spent their own time, and, and you know, been, and they're preserving them. Yes, oh, they that's... they had saved that all over wow. the years. The problem they had with you know they started with film, and then with videotape, and you know how do you let people see these other than current band members that are that are sitting there reviewing them in a in a class or a practice. So I talked to David Woolley. Um, he is the a retired superintendent of Alma Schools. He was a band director for a long time. But I wanted to know how all this happened, so this is what he had to say. The arrangement that the band had for filming their halftime performances uh, ceased to work out. So Bill, my brother, took it upon himself to figure out a way to fill that void. Uh, didn't on a totally volunteer basis, didn't have any money, didn't have any equipment, but started trying to figure out how to make it work. 
of course, and back in those days, it was 16 millimeter film. This was this was in uh, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, videotape hadn't come along yet at all in any form. Um, mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, not only was it 16 millimeter, it was black and white 16 millimeter because color was so horribly expensive in those days, mm-hmm. especially processing. Uh, so that's the way it began. Uh, and I was still an undergraduate, and he was actually teaching school in Newport. Uh, and we did this kind of as we could on on the Saturdays uh, and provided that uh, to, the, to the band. It, it's two things. It just It's not any different than it is for football or basketball or anything else. It is uh, useful for public relations in all kinds of ways. But more importantly, it's a teaching tool. It's to help the, the, in reviewing the performance to help the members of the band get better and do a better job the next week. Um, that was its real primary purpose, and still that, that's still true today. And that's David Woolley, one of the two brothers. Right. Bill, his brother, was a drummer, and David was a music major, so he played a bunch of instruments. Uh, his main instrument, I think, was oboe and uh, bassoon for his major, but you don't have that in a marching band. So he switched off and played the baritone. Oh, cool. Yeah, so he went from a wind instrument to a brass instrument, which, from experience, that's very, very hard to do. So they've been doing this for years, 50 years, more than 50 maybe. Uh, Are they still recording this? Yeah, they're still doing it, and they'll be at the game this weekend. Wow. So um, I wanted to talk to him some more about... Why they do it? Yeah, it's always been a labor of love for us. As I said at the very beginning, it's it's a way for us to give back to an organization that meant so much to us at the time and has meant so much to us as adults and in our lives and career. Plus, it uh, it lets us stay around college kids, um, which is always invigorating for any of us. Uh, you know, we're we're not around the band all that much. Uh, uh, basically a little bit, you know, we're in the press box, obviously at, at a game and we're not in the stands with the band very much, but we are a little bit and just being able to rub shoulders with them and know, know that we're, we're doing something that's very important for the, uh, advancement and improvement and welfare of the band is, is a tremendous thing to us and something that, well, as we joke about it, some, one of these days we're going to get too old to get up the steps, but until that time comes, <laughs> We're going to keep doing it. You, at the beginning of our visit this Monday, Randy, you kind of gave us uh, some forward, some foreshadowing, because you said there was something that's going on with the Pryor Center, with right. the Razorback Band, a project. You've told us about the Woolley Brothers. I'm guessing that this is a combination that somehow the Pryor Center is going to let us watch these performances they've recorded? That's right. Ah, that's Yes, awesome. they got together uh, with the university and... Uh, raise the funds to have all of it digitized, the film, the videotape, and now their digital material, and donated it or made it available to the Prior Center. We now have it on our website. It's featured on our website. So if I say, oh, I would like to see the halftime performance from the Arkansas SMU game that was in Little Rock in 1972. They've got it. Wow. We've got it. Wow. They've got it and let us have it. If you hey, said, I, hey, this I, was what okay. was amazing. I was sitting around with my brother Phil the other night, 
and he started looking at it. They have it silent, but they have the halftime show from the Arkansas-Nebraska game from 1964 at the Cotton Bowl when we won the national championship. Wow. So it goes all the way back to there. So um, I talked to Chris Knighton about all of this, how all this happened, and he said it started with a with a phone call from David Woolley. He mentioned to me that first year I was here that wouldn't it be great to somehow compile all of this and then shared a lot of boxes of video with us. We also did a complete purge of our band building and found a lot of additional video, either on film or videotape and all, and now digital format. So about seven years ago, we contacted our friends in Fulbright College Office of Development, did a small campaign to raise some funds and have all of this digitized. And that took several years to do that. Amy Allen and Special Collections and the University of the library was extremely helpful in helping us make contact with them and how to do this in digitization in such a way that it was um, not only a good archive that could be available for the public, but also a true research um, storehouse of information. So we have information not only on the date and the game uh, or the opponent of who are playing at every game, but also what music was being played, who the directors were, who the drum majors were, the type of format of film and audio equipment that was used to record the band. And it has become a great resource for us, not only to see the history of our band, but also for so many of our alumni. We can send out links on certain days. You know, For example, last year when we played the University of Texas, we were able to send out links of the band performing at an Arkansas-Texas game from the past. And it's been a good way for us to to make some connections with family and friends and alumni of the band program. But it's also become a great resource for other university band directors around the country who are teaching courses in marching band techniques. Well, and as you as we talked about at the beginning, you can't imagine a Razorback football game without the Razorback band. Oh no! I way. mean, whether it's pregame, halftime, or even during the game. I mean, it even at a bad game. Uh, score-wise, you still have a great experience with the band. Yeah, I mean, we may lose to the Citadel, but, hey, the band was there and they were great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, you know, they they come through mm-hmm. every time. So um, here's what marching band director Jeffrey Summers had to say about their contribution to the big game. The band is part of what makes college football special. Um, just adding to the atmosphere and the ambiance and the, the excitement of pregame and the, the anticipation of leading up into the first, you know, the, the kickoff and things like that. So I, th- I think that's part of it. Um, and we're, we're literally in the student section. Um, and so in, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like we, we kind of act like the catalyst for the student section, uh, especially when, you know, things may not be going quite as well as you <laughs> would hope as far as like, you know, the, the score in the game, you know, we're, we're always, you know, we're never going to be leaving early. We're never going to not be bringing a lot of energy, which I, don't know, I just think it's, I think it's special. All right. And again, to see any of these donated digital archives of performances, just go to the Prior Center. Prior, Google Prior Center and go there. We'll have it featured this week. So it'll be on our front page. Nice. It has every game. And as Chris said, it, it lists all the information wow. behind that. So it's, it's a nice 
historical uh, collection to have. Awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. Before I let you go, your prediction for the Cincinnati game? It's going to be close. We're going to win. I'm like not going to give a point spread sure. or no, anything I like, like that. Close, but we win. I'll, yeah. I'll take that. Entertaining. Yeah. That ends with a victory. Yes. Very good. And the band will be playing, and this may be a little sneak preview of what you'll hear and see, but uh, I, I caught caught up with them, and this week they were, or last week, they were practicing and uh, a performance of Life is a Highway. We'll go out with that. Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas World Visual History. As always, Randy, thank you. Thank you. See you next week. A new documentary from Arkansas PBS explores the importance of soil. Dirt is going to delve into how Arkansas farmers, ranchers, and others are conserving their soil, water, air, and other natural resources, improving their operations, and helping the environment with sustainability methods. Broadcast premiere Thursday night. More information at myarpbs.org. And the 70th annual Cherokee National Holiday returns to an in-person event in and around Tahlequah this coming weekend, beginning Thursday. The Cherokee National Holiday will also continue to provide a number of virtual elements so Cherokee citizens who cannot attend the in-person activities can participate in the celebration online at the CherokeeHoliday.com website. For people at the celebration, a fishing tournament, uh, tribal powwow, traditional games. This all commemorates the signing of the Cherokee Nation Constitution 1839, which reestablished the tribe's government in Indian Territory after forced removal from the Cherokee's original homelands in the southeast. A full schedule of activities and more details can be found at the Facebook page for Cherokee National Holiday. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring the business of sport, including the toughest golf courses, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information at 725-0394 or nwabusinessjournal.com. This is Ozarks at Large. As summer dims, traditional autumn season's near, Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, is preparing for its biggest season yet. The first concert is in October, and the season includes music from some of the stalwarts, like Brahms, but also new compositions, new collaborations, and new ideas. Last week, Riley Nicholson, the executive director of Sona, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. He says there is no specific overlying theme to the 2022-23 season, but the concerts do fit into Sona's overarching vision. We are really doubling down on our commitment to think broadly about what orchestral music can be. Um, to expand the definition of what is possible in an orchestra and what classical music means to people. I would say that is the, if there is a theme, that's the overarching theme. So that obviously means all the, the beloved classics that we know, that we are not abdicating our responsibility to time-honored works. That's 100% of who we are. And there's all of this other music that we feel also deserves attention and also can attract a wider audience. Um, so all of that is who we want Sona to be, and we try to represent that this season. 
Sounds like you're going to go big or go home. Exactly. Good reference. Literally, the title of the first piece we'll play um, on our season opener um, was very strategically placed, Go Big or Go Home by Jessica Myers. What can you tell me about the piece? It is raucous and joyous. It's an orchestra piece, but it also has a drum set, electric guitar, electric bass, and so there's that, both in the stylistic influence and in just the instrumentation itself, there's rock influence there, um, and it's it's very energetic, very joyous. It's hard for someone, um, the recordings I've seen of other orchestras playing this, Everybody has a smile on their face. It's kind of not hard to be excited and feel joyous while listening and playing this. That's part of the first concert, which is October 29th. It's called Imagine Big. That's on there. Shostakovich is on there. Pictures at an exhibition there. So that's sort of that, you know, that combination you were talking about. New and the revered. Absolutely. And we're also, this season, really trying to focus on themes. So we're trying to think about overarching themes per concert unit that people can connect with because music is always about something you know everybody can take away something a little bit different but you know a composer usually has a specific idea or feeling or meaning and so we tried to think about that and then collectively what can a concert mean to to the audience and how can we make that relatable so rather than it being this is masterworks concert 1 right, um right we're thinking about, well, what can we call this uh, a theme that people can relate with? So um, Imagine Big you know, is, is, is uh, Concert One. You know, others are Mother and Child or Evoking Folklore or things like that. That Okay, this is a concept. Whether or not you have classical music background doesn't matter. This is a universal concept that you can latch on to. You mentioned Mother and Child and, and the, the first performance on that concert, which is in uh, early January, has a deep Arkansas connection. It's William Grant Still's Mother and Child. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that that speaks to you know our commitment um, to looking at who are composers that might have been overlooked in the past, um, and also so there's that commitment, and then also just that fit within the theme of the program. So it was a, a perfect fit, and it's a really beautiful that whole program. Um, it's probably going to be our most tear jerking program. It's just gorgeous, devastating a little bit, but in a really cathartic and beautiful way. There's a piece by Gorecki on there that is as emotional as music perhaps can be. Yeah, yeah. It, symphony number three. Yeah. If it's my, no, I promise I did not make this happen. It's Paul and the artistic committee's idea, but when they said that they wanted to do this piece, I, I, <laughs> I did a... You did um, not to <laughs> say no. I did not say no. It's one of my favorites. And, and um, it's an audience, we, I feel like it can be an audience favorite as well. It, it's interesting. So a lot of people don't know about it and a lot of... People haven't heard it live, but yet, actually, it's one of the highest-selling classical albums 
I think, in, in modern times. So it's maybe not played as much as like Mozart and Beethoven, but as far as classical record sales, it's really popular and for good reason. I don't want to dismiss A Very Son of Christmas and The Snowman and Family Concert. That's the 10th and 11th of December. Those are much anticipated and will be wonderful. I do want to get to the new canons, though, because there's a composer on here with a familiar name. Yes. Um, several of them. Well, yes. Yes. <laughs> not just one. Yes. Um, one that I, I would hope, if you know Sona, you know who Paul Haas is, uh, our music director, who is also a composer. And his piece, um, oh boy, he's going to get mad at me if I mispronounce this. We'll just in say his piece, and when he comes here, <laughs> he can he pronounce can, it. Yes. He, um, a piece by him. It has been performed before, but it has never been recorded before. Um, and, and that's part of the inspiration of this concert. Same with Trevor New's piece, Cohere, um, sort of commonly known as New Canons, where the uh, the concert gets its title from. Uh, Trevor's Trevor News piece has been played by the American Composers uh, Orchestra, but no one has released a commercial recording. So not only will we be playing these live, but we will be recording. Um, we already have a recording of Le- Ray Lustig's piece, Latency Cannons, which we did um, during the pandemic as a digital concert. And then we're recording Trevor News piece and Paul's piece. And that will be on a commercial Sona's first ever commercial release. Fantastic! Um, at a, to be released at a later time that we haven't decided yet, and and um, performed on that concert um, alongside Brahms. That is fantastic. Battle of the Bands in April. I mean, you think Battle of the Bands, you think you know the rock station bringing bands in, but it's a collaboration with the Fayetteville Jazz Collective. It's not truly a battle of bands. Yeah, not, not no no sparring will happen. <laughs> right, just musical sparring. Um, so, we we actually had a meeting with Fayetteville Jazz Collective yesterday, and some really exciting ideas came from that conversation. So, what we're going to be exploring is not just Sona play something, Fayetteville Jazz Collective play something, and not even just we play something, they play something, and then we play one thing together. Also, different variations in between that. So it's um, uh, an exploration of how we can combine forces and create configurations that are greater than the sum of its parts. The the season announcement shows no selections on that. Just is that on purpose? You're, we're just going to be surprised? Uh, you're just going to have to be surprised. Okay, that's fine. We will announce uh, more specifics closer to um, the spring. Okay. And it will end, the season will end Saturday, April 29th. You mentioned earlier evoking folklore, uh, bringing back uh, a pianist who is a favorite among Fayetteville audiences, Angela Chang. Yes, yes. And that concert that was also, she was a favorite of Sarah Sharp. Yes. Um, so Frank Sharp and Sarah Sharp. Um, um, Sarah Sharp passed away uh, last year. And so this concert will be in memory of her. Um, and uh, that was, Angela was a 
Frank brought up that that was one of Sarah's favorite performances yeah. that she heard. So we want to bring her back. Um, and she will be performing Night in the Gardens of Spain by Defala. Um, and then, so this be, this concert is all about folklore. Um, so from many different parts of the world. So that's from Spain, of course. Um, and then Chickasaw Nation um, composer uh, uh, Jared Tate, um, he, his piece is about uh, Chickasaw folklore. And then uh, actually Sona's first time, well, obviously we played a lot of music by American composers, but to our knowledge, at least Sona, maybe Nasso did a long time <clears throat> ago, but Sona hasn't played like a major symphony by an American composer. We played smaller pieces. So I think this is the first time we've done an entire symphony by an American composer, which is obviously long overdue. So, um, and then that piece isn't necessarily about folklore directly, but it's Copland. Yeah. <laughs> so everything that Copland does uh, is pretty, infused with folklore. Right. right? It's yeah. like Americana. Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the season. It's nothing against previous seasons, but this seems like the most exciting one yet. Yeah. It's literally our biggest. So typically we've done uh, four. Uh, what we used to call Masterworks, I've tried to get away from that title. Um, and then Christmas and Snowman. So now we're doing all of that, plus instead of replacing one of those with a Pops concert, in this case Battle of the Bands, we wanted to add to it. And that really was born out of conversations with audience members and um, surveys and um, trying to get a pulse on what the community is asking for. And, and people really want to hear more pops and non-classical um, music. So we're trying to deliver on that promise. Tickets available now. Yes. Uh, Sonamusic.org. Uh, all the details will be there. You can buy subscriptions or if you want to just buy single tickets, that's fine too. And then that will send you to Walton Art Center and uh, their box office handles all of our tickets uh, for the Walton Art Center subscription series. Riley Nicholson is executive director for Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas. He talked with us last week. You can find out more at sonamusic.org. Mic check one, two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency with more than 20,000 downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and the Federal Agency for National Service announced a new partnership last week to combat food insecurity in Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth reports. Last Thursday, the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences announced a grant for $255,000 to help address food insecurity initiatives in the state. The grant funded by the American Rescue Plan Act will go toward filling 25 new AmeriCorps VISTA positions throughout Arkansas. Our agency's mission is to provide opportunities for Americans to serve their country domestically with entities like the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. AmeriCorps builds the capacity of food banks and addresses food insecurity at hundreds of locations across the nation. During the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, unemployment and food insecurity soared. According to AmeriCorps data, the number of people visiting food banks also rose, with an estimated 4 in 10 Americans visiting food banks for the very first time. 
Dan Dunlap is a deputy regional administrator for AmeriCorps. He says the federal AmeriCorps VISTA initiative on food insecurity was launched in 2020 and has funded more than $2 million to nonprofit groups across the U.S. working to provide hunger relief. Coming in from the outside, we don't know who, uh, who we should be funding particularly. We don't know who is doing great work in the communities. UAMS does. So we, use, we work with them as a partner where they identify local nonprofits to place these VISTA members there. Um, so they're identifying where the greatest need is and where this capacity building can best be felt. Dunlap says members will help local organizations expand services through fundraising, grant writing, outreach, and data collection. Pearl McElfish, director of the UAMS Office of Community Health and Research, says VISTAs will be placed all throughout Arkansas with programs directly related to hunger relief like food banks or agricultural programs. Also other nonprofits whose primary mission might not be food insecurity, but who also address food insecurity among their clients or need expanded capacity to do so. So this could be a service-based nonprofit that wants to expand their, their services, such as the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese or other organizations who serve the community but may not have food insecurity as their primary mission. One in five Arkansans are considered food insecure, meaning they struggle to find sufficient and consistent nutrition, according to a 2020 report from the Hunger Relief Alliance. McElfish says in addressing the issue of food insecurity, UAMS and its partners can combat other health and social problems. Arkansas has one of the highest rates of food insecurity in the nation, and there are very direct links in the research from food insecurity to um, health and disease. So we know that people who have food insecurity are more likely to have diabetes and cancer. They are also less likely to recover or manage those diseases. And so addressing food insecurity is both about prevention of disease and improvement of health outcomes among those who may have a chronic disease. And she says this work couldn't be done without the resources provided by the AmeriCorps VISTA program. AmeriCorps VISTAs are a great opportunity to take college graduates who have specific skills and expanded skills and also allow them to have a greater learning opportunity. And the funding that helps pay for the VISTAs allow those organizations to have these employees, these paid volunteers that they would otherwise not be able to afford to have. The AmeriCorps grant pays for the salaries of the new members along with travel expenses and a UAMS supervisor. Emily English, an assistant professor with UAMS, says the positions are funded through the next three years. AmeriCorps VISTA members, the Food Security Initiative AmeriCorps VISTA members, serve for one year. So they serve for 12 months in their position, their full-time positions. Um, We are recruiting now for both service sites, organizations in the community who are addressing food insecurity and would like to host a service member. Um, So we're recruiting those organizations and then we're also recruiting the service members who would like to spend that year in service to their community. She says UAMS will do the recruiting for the VISTA members, while AmeriCorps will provide training for the members and partner organizations. Application information can be found at AmeriCorps.gov serve. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. 
Daniels reporting, like his morning newscasts, originate in the Karen Taha News Studio. The Arkansas volleyball season is underway. The Razorbacks split a pair of home matches this week with number eight in the country, Washington. Arkansas's win Friday night gave the Razorbacks a victory over a top 10 team for the first time in seven years. The Razorbacks open a three-match tournament in Fort Collins, Colorado, Thursday. The John Brown University volleyball team won three of its first four matches of the season at a tournament in Columbia, Missouri this weekend. They'll play next at Oklahoma City University Wednesday night to start the conference season. And the University of Arkansas Fort Smith volleyball team, 3-1 and one after a season-opening tournament. Next, the Denali State Bank Ice Block Classic in Fairbanks, Alaska, beginning Friday. Razorback soccer team, 2-1 and one after yesterday's 4-1 defeat of Arkansas State in Fayetteville. Arkansas will host Western Michigan in Fayetteville Thursday night. And the 11th-ranked JBU women's soccer team will host number 21 Missouri Valley at Alumni Field in Salem Springs Saturday. Last Friday, the Golden Eagles improved to 2-0 with a 2-0 win over Benedictine. The JBU men earned a draw in their Friday night matchup with the Benedictine and will be at Southwestern Kansas Wednesday night. On the next episode of Resilient Black Women... Joy and Denisha continue their conversation with Miss Dorothy Marcy, licensed professional counselor for more than 30 years. Miss Marcy shares more of her wisdom from a lifetime of experience as an educator, mother, mentor, and counselor. White people say, what do I need to do? I'll say, make some black friends. Let yourself be uncomfortable. Go put yourself in an environment that's not familiar to you. We need to do the same thing. We need to push those boundaries because we are powerful people, but not if we are bickering and and competing against each other. Yeah. Listen to episode two of season two of Resilient Black Women, available for free now at KUAF.com and wherever you find your podcasts. But don't let them touch your hair. Those roots were born before you were even here. And may God bless This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Ponca. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. Contributors included Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Daniel Carruth. I'm Kyle Kellums. Our theme is titled First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Once again, thanks to everyone who helped make the Roots Festival weekend such another success. It was great to be back on the air with a live broadcast Friday. And again, we're going to hear some of the other sessions that we didn't have on live from musicians uh, Friday afternoon on our show and then our Labor Day show. So stay tuned. We will be back, though, tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. and via the absolutely free Ozarks at Large podcast. Thanks for being with us today. Be well.